When I wanted to know a little bit more about the governor's race in Georgia, I knew exactly who I wanted to talk to. My friend Kai Wright. He just got back from a trip down south this past weekend. So I got him on the phone. So you flew into Atlanta? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's a lot of driving. The place he went is pretty rural. Clay County. Population about 3,000. It's the part of the state where Hurricane Michael just passed through. I mean, there's still a lot of folks when I was there that didn't have power yet. And uh, and so in the middle of all of this, as the selection is unfolding, you've got people lining up to get food because they don't have power to keep food in their houses. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty tough area. It's a tough area. Kai told me about this woman he met while he was down there, Shirley Cody. Shirley is a 74-year-old black woman. She grew up in Clay County, um, but left and spent her career, you know, uh, in Atlanta as a nurse. She moved back to Clay County to take care of her parents as they were getting old and passing. Uh, And when she got back, she was like, what is this place? I remember this thriving community of Black people. She drove me around and she was like, that farm, that used to be Black-owned, and that place, that used to be Black-owned. You know, and and when she got back, it was instead this place um, with a lot of poverty um, and with a lot of Black folks who just really had their backs to the wall and where the government, county commission in particular, Um, is dominated by whites. Georgia's governor's race is getting people fired up because the Democratic nominee, a woman named Stacey Abrams, if she wins, she'd be the first black woman elected governor in the U.S. So down in Clay County, Shirley Cody is stepping up. She's going church to church every Sunday and saying, hey, you know, uh, if you want to vote, uh, one, you should vote, and I can help you. I can help you do that. Georgia has early voting, and one of the big ideas is to get as many early votes in as possible. So she's traveling around doing that. She didn't have a car herself. So she has to have um, these sort of network of volunteers who do have cars um, when they're not at work to come drive her around in order to do this get out to vote work. You mentioned how hard it was to get out to vote. But something else happened in Clay County, right? Yeah. So the state of Georgia has closed, some, I believe the number is 214 polling places Uh, over the last four years. 214? 214. Uh, The state would call it consolidating polling places, that they have, you know, gotten rid of redundancies. And so for someone like Shirley Cody, what that means is, you know, they used to have, uh, she drove me by the place she used to, she's like, this is where I voted for many, many years, Uh, that was, you know, not far down, you could walk there from her house. That place is closed. And and now you, you vote downtown in the county, and that's, you know, 20, 30-minute drive, which, you know, to some people that sounds like, oh, it's 20, 30-minute drive. But again, remember, the person trying to get out the vote doesn't have a car, let alone many of the other folks. You mentioned that, they, you know, they closed the polling places, but who made that decision? Well, that's the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State is Brian Kemp, who happens to be the person running for governor for the Republican Party against Stacey Abrams. Yeah, you heard that right. The same person who oversaw the decision to close all these polling places is now running for governor. And this is just one way Brian Kemp has limited who's voting in this election and how. I'm Mary Harris. Today, what next for Georgia? 
I've got Kai Wright and Slate's own Jamel Bowie right here. They're going to explain how what happens in this one state could change the way elections are run everywhere else. Stay with us. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What happened to Shirley Cody's polling place in Clay County? It's just one more way it's gotten way harder to vote in Georgia in the last few years. Election officials have purged nearly one and a half million people from the voting rolls since 2012. This year, tens of thousands of Georgia voters have a pending status instead of fully registered. Their registration information didn't exactly match their government ID. And then some voters have already said their absentee ballots have been rejected because their signatures just didn't look right to election officials. I asked Jamel Bowie and Kai Wright to tell me more about Georgia because both of them told me that what's happening there has big implications for the rest of the country. When I called them up, I asked Jamel to start us off by telling me a little bit more about the man behind the election machine, Brian Kemp, the Republican Secretary of State, who just happens to be campaigning for governor against Stacey Abrams. So Brian Kemp is the Secretary of State. He is the state's chief election official responsible for administering elections, for making sure that voters have access to ballots, the polling stations, um, organizing precincts, kind of the whole day-to-day business of running elections. Uh, Brian Kemp and his office are responsible for and he's held that position since, I believe, 2010. Who is this guy as a candidate? As a candidate, that's an interesting question. So as a candidate during the primary, um, during the Republican primary for governor, he was basically a mini Trump. That's how he sold himself. He drove around in a van um, touting how he would round up undocumented immigrants. He was unyieldingly hostile to immigration and to sort of the whole suite of uh, Trump enemies And that's how he won the primary, sort of out-trumping his opponent. In the general election, he has tried to moderate somewhat. Um, He still has those positions, but is emphasizing his support for business, his support for low taxes, kind of the usual um, sort of land, the usual group of Republican issues. You know what I most remember about Brian Kemp is his ad he did where he is holding a shotgun and there's like a young man next to him who's like theoretically wanting to date his daughter. And two things if you're going to date one of my daughters. Respect. And? A healthy appreciation for the Second Amendment, sir. We're going to get along just fine. So, Jamel, Kemp is clearly playing to the Republican base. And you've written about how voting restrictions have become this big part of Republican strategy over the last few years. That's right. How? So it's always been the case that parties have tried to manipulate the voting system. That's sort of how, I'm not going to say that's how democracy works necessarily, but it's just true that. (laughs) That's like how democracy doesn't work. Right, right. 
it is true that parties just try to attain whatever advantage they can through the voting system. What sort of makes Republican actions unique over the past, I'd say, 15 years or so, really beginning in the middle of the 2000s, is the degree to which this isn't local officials here or there, but this really has been a concerted effort to reduce the size of the electorate and do so in ways that are historically resonant, basically trying as much as possible to add obstacles that disproportionately harm black people, Hispanic people, low-income people. And the idea is very simple, that these are people who are less likely to vote for Republicans. And so if you can add obstacles to their ability to vote, you've just sort of increase the odds that the Republican may win the election. And this is in lieu of any attempt to reach out to these voters. I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these uh, efforts accelerated after 2008 when Barack Obama won the presidency on a coalition that was kind of rooted in these voters, that there seems to have been a conclusion that Republican candidates will have a hard, if impossible, time winning any substantial number of these voters. So rather than try, they'll just make it harder for those people to vote. Yeah, you wrote about how Phyllis Schlafly, who drove Republican strategy for a long time, had really embraced voting restrictions before she died. That's right. You can sort of look at the the constellation of conservative activists and see not just people who support uh, voting restrictions, but people whose entire sort of persona as as activists is is centered on uh, the pursuit of voting restrictions. So Chris Kobach in Kansas um, is sort of the most infamous of these people who has really made an entire career of calling for kind of draconian um, obstacles to obtaining a ballot. Yeah, so it's not just Georgia we're talking about here. That's right. The states that have passed far-reaching voter identification laws or embrace other kinds of suppression range from places that, given their histories, you might expect, like North Carolina, uh, Florida, Texas, Alabama, to Wisconsin, uh, to Indiana, this is sort of a national concern, although there has been research uh, that, that suggests that you're most likely to see these kind of laws or these kinds of attempts in places where there are large African-American populations. You know, Jamel, you're talking about strategy and Republican strategy, and it just makes me think about, you know, over the last week, we've heard a lot about the voter suppression tactics in Georgia. There was this story that came out about a bus full of senior citizens who stopped from voting. And I wonder if that's tactical, too, just on the Democratic side, where you're getting stories like this out as a way to drive voters. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think they're, I think the Democrats do have a real interest in publicizing these stories, given the reality of attempts to suppress the vote. And one of the ironies of all of this is that the evidence about how much these measures actually suppress the vote is mixed, and it's mixed in part because people do respond to them. People get angry when they're when it's suggested that they someone's trying to stop them from voting. And so there's this way in which um, these laws can generate, you know, surges that overcome the effects of those laws themselves. Which has led some conservative commentators to say that, hey, what's the big deal? There's no particular effect here. But I think that it is wrong. Like the act of doing it is wrong and the act of doing it should be criticized regardless of what the actual effects are. It's also when, when you're thinking about strategy, right? Like it's these two strategies that 
Jamel is describing, one from the Republican side and one from the Democratic side, do go hand in hand. They're not coincidental. When you have tight elections, where you are within uh, a, you know, a, a small number of votes, margin of difference, then, you know, being able to throw out 53,000 votes because, well, the names on the registration didn't exactly match the name on their driver's license, that can win an election. Yeah, it struck me that when you were in Clay County, you said it was 3,000 people? A little over 3,000 people. That's so small. It's very small, but there's but there's 159 counties, and many of them are quite small in that way, you know. Um, and so Abram's strategy is, you know, listen, a place like Clay County, there's 60,000. It, it's 33,000 people, but it's 60 percent black. If we can get 500 votes in Clay County and, you know, 1,000 votes in, in the next county and still have the strong turnout that we expect in um, big cities, uh, well, that, that totally changes the electoral map. But if you can suppress, you know, then you might be able to save your majority. Yeah, Jamel, you've called this, this particular fight, a fight for the soul of our democracy. We're looking at this race. It's a dead heat right now between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. How is what's happening in Georgia going to change all these strategies we've been talking about moving forward? I think... To a degree, it might end up being proof of concept on both on both sides, right? If Brian Kemp manages to eke out a win, you know, he won't attribute this to voter suppression, but observers may attribute this to voter suppression. You'll see other Republican secretaries of state become, if they aren't already, more brazen about these attempts to restrict the ability of potential political opponents to vote. On the other end, if Stacey Abrams wins, if Stacey Abrams manages to overcome not just the legacy of history, but sort of Georgia's partisan lean to become governor of the state. I mean, that is proof of concept for the the power of not just voter registration drives or sort of mobilization, but real efforts to engage people on the ground on a regular basis over years on both ends. There are real implications for strategy and for the direction of either party's politics. Okay, Jamal and Kai, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we head into the weekend, there's something else that's been on my mind all week. USA Gymnastics. Is she calling you? Yeah. Hey, Devorah. Hey. Hey, how how you doing? This is Devorah Meyer. She's a writer over at Deadspin. Were you a gymnast? Um, I was a J.O. kid. Um, So I was like a level six Sometimes I sometimes I say I had some level seven skills to like make myself look cooler. JO means Junior Olympics, by the way. It's a competitive program that's actually run by USA Gymnastics. In a word, I was terrible. 
<laughs> but I was very passionate. Unfortunately, passion does not allow you to do back handsprings successfully in the beam. But it does, <laughs> so. it does allow you to successfully blog about the sport. Exactly. I, you know... I wanted to talk to Devorah because this has been one of the most turbulent weeks ever if you follow gymnastics. If you recall back in January, whole country watched as one athlete after another took the stand and testified against a doctor named Larry Nasser. He perpetrated years of sexual abuse against elite gymnasts. Eventually, he was sentenced to 175 years in prison. But USA Gymnastics, which governs this sport, they are still reeling from all this. They've seen resignation after resignation. At one point, their whole board resigned. And then this week, a guy named Steve Penny, at one point he led this sport. He was arrested. It's been reported he was trying to bribe FBI agents while they were investigating all those abuse allegations. So, Devorah, what is going on over at USA Gymnastics? So I think this has just been perhaps the craziest week, not the craziest, but one of the crazier weeks in this past two-year period for gymnastics fans and athletes and everyone on Twitter. Unfortunately, it's one of many crazy weeks that they've experienced. And the the World Championship team, which was selected last Friday, just arrived in Doha. And they, in the midst of all this chaos, are going to be, be preparing for competition. And I just want to add one more thing. In terms of the arrest of Steve Penny and um, the New York Times reports, I think for a lot of gymnastics fans, that was long overdue. They felt that there needed to be some repercussions at the top of USA Gymnastics for everything that happened. So Steve Penny has been arrested, but over the last year or so, there has been such incredible churn at USA Gymnastics. Two people have been appointed to head up this organization. Both of them have resigned, one of them just this week. The entire board has changed over. And all of this traces back to Larry Nasser? Um, yes and no. I, I I don't think you have seen this upheaval had Larry Nasser not happened. But at the same time, what sort of triggered this whole crisis really was the reporting of the Indianapolis Star in August of 2016, where they did a big blockbuster investigation into how USA Gymnastics handled um, complaints of sexual abuse and that they didn't immediately report member coaches to the authorities. And so that was sort of what was the catalyst for all of this. So yes, I don't, I'm not entirely certain that we'd have this sort of institutional upheaval without Larry Nasser, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there was a massive systemic issue um, that the Indy Star picked up on even before they became aware of Larry Nasser's abuse. One Olympian, Dominique Mosiano, mm-hmm. Dominique Mosiano said that USA Gymnastics needs to be completely dissolved and replaced by a new organization. I I think I would agree. I think at this point they have proven themselves to be incapable of doing the necessary reforms. Maybe the institution is just so broken it can't be reformed. But yeah, I think, you know, given all that has happened, the fact that they're also under threat of, you know, they're being sued from every single direction, I don't know how they would come out of this. You know, you mentioned a bunch of folks talking on Twitter about what's going on, folks who have spoken out saying that maybe USA Gymnastics needs to be replaced. Is there any conversation about what, we should replace it with? I don't know that there is, at least at the moment. 
that there is something that can truly step in and just replace USA Gymnastics is I think people forget when we think of USA Gymnastics, we think of the Olympic teams and, you know, that's in selection of the Olympic teams and that kind of that level of gymnastics, which is the elite gymnastics. But there are thousands and thousands of registered USA Gymnastics gymnasts in the United States who compete in what we call the Junior Olympic program, where the level is like one through 10. And, and all they all compete at affiliated clubs. And that is also another part of what USA Gymnastics does. And so the question is, is there someone around who has an organization or is there some sort of structure in place that could take on that role as well? Because it's not, you know, it'd be rather simple to sort of put together a committee and establish the rules for determining the Olympic team. That wouldn't be the hardest thing, but it's all those other roles that that's the bigger question. Devorah Myers, thank you so much for telling me a little bit more about what's going on here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. One very last thing, I swear. Just as we finished recording today's show, an indictment came down the line. The DOJ revealed they've charged a Russian woman by the name of Elena Kushyanova for her alleged role in a conspiracy to interfere with the 2018 U.S. election. That's right. The midterms, the ones that haven't even happened yet. This is the first criminal case prosecutors have brought against a foreign national for interfering in these upcoming elections. We're going to be following this story. You can bet you'll be hearing about it all weekend long. That is our show today. We're piloting this show in public for the next month through the midterms. We're going to be moving real fast. And we want to hear from you. What'd you like? What did you like not so much? Email us. Whatnext at slate.com. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. TJ Raphael, thank you so much for making sure this first week went off without a hitch. One more thing, Kai Wright, who you heard from in today's show, you should really go check out his podcast, United States of Anxiety. It's great. It's awesome. And he will have more reporting on Stacey Abrams in the next couple of weeks. I'm Mary Harris. I'm going to see you on Monday. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.